Gideon, he had just conquered the Midianites and, and they, they slew 120,000 of them and, and 15,000 were on the run and Gideon was in pursuit of them. And then I don't know if you remember, but basically where we left off was um, right, right in that point, basically in there. But let, let's pick it up in chapter eight um, fresh. And it says now there, this is the I'm in Joshua chapter eight. I'm looking at this, these notes in here and I'm like. This is the grand and the grand now. I'm like, wow, all right, Joshua, how about Judges? It's going to be the same. But, And I was looking at the end of seven for like that little piece I wanted to highlight before we went to eight. And I didn't see it. So I was like, let's just go to eight. <laughs> all right, that would make sense. All right, here we go. All right, let's try it again. Now the men of Ephraim said to him, why have you done this to us by, by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And, and they reprimanded him sharply. So, you know, the thing was Gideon had called, right, the men of Israel. And many of them came and, um, and, and then many of them went home. Well, then Gideon has this amazing victory. Um, and then he goes and they begin to pursue. And the men of Ephraim come down and they reprimand um, um, Gideon. And they say, you know, why didn't you call us when it was time to fight? And, and where were you? And so they, it says that they reprimanded him sharply in verse 1. And it says in verse 2, so he said to them, what have I done? Done now in comparison with you is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer and God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided with that. So Gideon in his first time, he's going to deal with them. They're going to come to him again later and Gideon's not going to be as gracious, but he kind of kills them with kindness in this first um, battle and he compliments them and he uses that tact of saying, oh man, what, what you guys did was greater than what we did. And you know, you guys got to kill the two, the two kings, Oreb and Zeb, and you know, well, we didn't do nothing. You know, they're like, oh, they, they, they liked it. They liked the compliments that he gave them. Like, oh, you're right. You're right. It's okay. We're not mad anymore. So he, he kind of killed them with diplomacy this time, but he's not going to, as they, as they, they're going to come back again. They're going to be mad about something else. And then in verse four, it says, and when Gideon came to Jordan, he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over exhausted, but still in pursuit. So Gideon is still with his original 300 and they're pursuing this um, fleeing 15,000 men. Now we know that um, not one of the the Israelites had had, um, wielded a sword yet, right? In the original battle, 120,000, the God showed up, he sent confusion among the camp and they killed each other. And so, but now we have this 300 pursuing 15,000. You know, one of the things that you see, especially through the book of Judges, really all the way through the Bible, but, you know, a lot of Greek mythology, it, it has its roots in true stories that come from, and many of those come from the Bible. Like the, um, how many of you guys seen the movie 300? That's like, you know, that's epic, right? Like with the, 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 the Spartans at Thermopolis and, you know, and uh, what's his name? Who's the... Who's that great king that comes, Osiris, or what's his name? Who's the king that comes at the end? He throws the spear and he cuts his face but doesn't kill him. He's Xerxes. Xerxes is the king out of, out of Daniel in the, in the Bible, and he's a real king of history, Xerxes. And, um, so, but, but many of those, those Greek legends, you can find similar stories in the Bible. I don't know if they're the same or, you know, that, but, but definitely that stuff comes from somewhere and, and we find them. So we have here the original 300, the real 300, and these, these men are, are, are marching towards a, a, an army of 15,000. And it says, um, and then when he, and then in verse five, he said to the men of Sukkoth, 
Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing Ziba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. So they had already killed the two kings, Zeb and Oreb, and now they're pursuing two more, the other two kings, um, Ziba and Zalmunna. And so bread for the army in verse six and verse seven says, so Gideon said for this cause, when the Lord has delivered Ziba and Zalmunna in my hand, then I will tear your flesh with thorns of the wilderness and the briar. So they said, no, I missed that verse, right? I was stumbling. So I, I thought I missed the verse over oh, six. And the leaders of Sukkoth said, are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hand that we should give you bread to your army? And Gideon said, I will tear your flesh um, with thorns when I return. And so basically um, they're, they're basically saying, you know, we don't know who's going to win yet. You know, if we, if we give you bread and you 300 go up and fight 15,000 and get slaughtered, which you're going to, and you come back down, then they're going to slaughter us and we're going to, we're going to have a problem and we don't know who's going to win yet. So we're not going to give you this bread. But basically the front wasn't towards Gideon and his 300. These, these are Jews. These are Hebrews. They knew the story of the original 120,000 that died. This flies in the face of, of the power of God. And basically they weren't necessarily denying Gideon. They're denying the testimony and the power of God in this, in this whole story. And no doubt Gideon gave them testimony of what God did and that God was in it. And it wasn't, they didn't even raise a sword and they've already had this amazing um, victory of 120,000. There's 15,000 left. We're pursuing them. We need some bread. We're tired. We've been, we've been going, going, going all night and, and, and we still have to, you know, continue to pursue. And so the decision that these guys made, again, it, it was a lack of faith on their part. It was a lack of just seeing the, the past victory that God had just wrought through Israel and, and believing that this 300 was going to go up and be. And so because they didn't want to be in a bad position, they didn't have faith, they said, no, we're not giving you any bread. So Gideon took off, basically, he threatens them and takes off. And then he went up from there in verse 8 to Peniel, and he spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Peniel answered him as the men of Sukkoth answered him. And so they, they basically said the same thing. So he also spoke to the men of Peniel saying, when I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. And so Gideon said, all right, you know, so, so now they're marching through these two cities, both refuse to give them bread in pursuit. And, and Gideon threatens both of the cities that when we have victory, we're going to come back. But, but now by the time we get to verse nine, they're, they're marching on again, fatigued, no, no sustenance, no bread. They didn't get any help from any of those people. So he also spoke to the, I'm sorry, verse 10. Now Ziba and Zalmunna were at Karkor and their armies with them about 15,000 all who were left of all the army of the people of the east for 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. And so that's how when you when you read the story of Gideon and we say his 300 versus 135,000 Midianite soldiers, basically puts those two together. It's where the number 135,000 comes from. Pretty simple, right? 120,000 died, 15,000 left, 135,000 versus Gideon's 300. You know, when we shared the story of Gideon's 300, remember how we talked about some of the men um, got all the way down in the water and they drank, they drank the water like a dog does and other men brought the water to their face. You remember that story and God separated the men based on how they drank the water and the ones that put their face down in the water, did, which ones were those, stay or go home? Those were the go homes. And the ones that brought the water up to their face, those were the ones that he used and only 300 brought the water up to their face. Now, again, the, the traditional concept of 
of those 300 was that, that they were the ones that were like the Navy SEALs. They were, you know, they were watching and they were paying attention and that's why they wouldn't put their head down in the water and they were bringing it up to their mouth so that they could stay on alert. And, you know, and then, and then Gail Irwin comes around a couple of years ago and he says, no, that's not consistent with the story. God didn't use the Navy SEALs. It wasn't, he was looking for men that were, you know, that, that, that could, no matter what, people would know that God had the victory. Those were the ones that were too fat and sloppy and crippled that they couldn't, they couldn't get all the way down in the water because their back wouldn't let them. So they had to bring it up to the, to the, to the water. And so, but actually either way, the, the second idea is, is definitely more conducive to the story that these weren't just the, the, the Navy SEALs, the specialists, the greatest 300 of the men, the, the, the Spartans of Thermopolis. I mean, this is not, it's just not consistent because God was doing something so that he would receive the glory. And so that's always the way I've taught it, that, that those weren't the gifted men. Those were the remedial class that God chose. And that's why out of 10,000 men, 300 of them couldn't put their face in the water because they just couldn't get in the water. But, but, but I do want to say something about those, you know, despite of, in spite of that, and whether that's true or not, um, you know, to give a little bit of credit to the 300, number one, the first criteria for, for those to go home was what those that are scared go home. And these men weren't scared. They stayed. And then, and then even after they stayed, even if they were the remedial class or the, the heavy guys or the crippled guys or whatever, I mean, they, they were, they were still there. And, and, you know, and, and God was doing something in, in the story of Gideon that the whole point was that God was going to have an amazing victory and God wasn't going to share his glory with anybody. I heard a pastor say, say recently, I love that he said, you're never more like Satan than when you try to touch God's glory. Because that's the whole point of Satan. Satan wanted to be like God. I, I want to be exalted as the most high and pride filled his heart and God sent him away. And God's not going to allow anybody to, to touch his glory or to take his glory. And they say, oh, God's a glory hog. And I say, yeah, he is. Get over it. It's his glory. He earned it. He deserves it. You don't have a heaven to send anybody to. You don't have a hell to send anybody to. You didn't die on a cross for nobody. So yeah, God gets the glory. He keeps the glory. And, and God was doing this so that when it was done, the folks that looked at it would have to say that this was God and not uh, a courageous army. But again, to, to give these 300 men a plug, no doubt they, they, they were men that God wanted to use. And whatever the criteria was, but I think it was more a matter of the heart than it was the, the outside and the physical ability or prowess that these had. But I do think they had some. And with if they lacked physical prowess, I really believe they had courage of heart and of character and of faith and, and that there was something special about that 300. So, And then it says, um, in verse 11, it says, Then Gideon went up by the road of all those who dwell in the tents on the east of Nabah and Jogbaha, and he attacked the army while, they camp fell, while the camp felt secure. And when Zeba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them. And he took the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. So, <laughs> you know, the Bible doesn't give us any details. That's all the details we get about this battle. So did, they, did God again do something miraculous in this second battle of the 15,000, the last 15,000? I mean, to me, the, the way that it reads is that the 300 went in there. And slew this army that, that maybe at this point they did wield the swords and, and use the swords. And, you know, and again, it doesn't give us that detail. But I think if there was something supernatural happening that we'd have some detail and when it says they went in and they they slew the army. Now you really have a, a historical event where 300 men 
go in and fight um, incredible odds against 15,000 and come out, come out victorious. And so the two kings fled, and it says, Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle and from the, from the ascent of the, of the Heres, Heres. And he caught a young man of the men of Sukkoth and interrogated him. And he wrote down for him the leaders of Sukkoth and its elders, 77 men. So I guess this kid had a good memory. And Gideon's like, I want all the names of Sukkoth. I'm on my way back to Sukkoth to make good on my threat. And he found a kid leaving Sukkoth. And he's like, sit down. And it says that the kid wrote it down. So the kid got out pen and paper and or whatever he got out, duck uh, feather and ink or whatever they used. And he wrote down the 77 men, maybe their names, their, who they were, the leaders, something about them. And now Gideon's got a list of 77 names and he's marching to Sukkoth and he's got a bone to pick with these guys for not giving him the bread. And it says, um, then he came to the men of Sukkoth and he said, here are Ziba and Zalmunna. What now, boy, how, how about whom you ridiculed me saying, are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hands that we should give bread to your men? And then he took the elders of the cities and thorns of the wilderness and briars with them. And I love this. He taught the men of Sukkoth. <laughs> Maybe it should say he what? He taught them a lesson. He whooped them. So it doesn't say what he did, you know, whether he just took them thorns out there and he just whipped the, whipped the snot out of them with those thorns. And, or if he laid all the thorns on the ground and drugged their naked bodies over the top of them or what he did. But basically it says, you know, that he taught them, you know, and, and he applied a, a, a lesson to their, their flesh. And so, you know, sometimes that's the way we learn, you know, the hard way. And so he, he taught them, the Bible says, which is interesting. He disciplined, I guess that word could be translated in the, in the Hebrew, that he disciplined them or he taught them. And then he tore down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the city. So he, he had those two cities that he promised he was going to come back to. So the men of um, Sukkoth, he, he taught them a lesson and he, you know, he scourged them. And then when he got to Peniel, he killed those guys. And, when he, and he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, what kind of men were they whom you k- killed at Tabor? So they answered, as you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. And they said, they, he said, they were my brothers, the son of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not, I would not kill you. And he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill him. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. And so um, Gideon here um, is talking to the, the two kings. And he says, you know, when you, when you fought the battle at Tabor, what were the men like that you killed? And, he, and they said, I don't know why they would say this. I guess they know they're dead or maybe they're poking and prodding him at this point. Like all the men, the Tabor that we killed, they looked exactly like you, man. They looked just like you could have been your brothers. They were my brothers. And so then he tells his son who's there, his young son who's raising up. He says, you know, take your sword and, and kill him. And the boy won't do it. The boy's afraid for whatever reason. He's a youth. He's not a man of war. And Gideon was not a man of war either necessarily. Right. When we found Gideon, he was, you know, threshing wheat in the, in the wine press and so his, his son just won't do it, you know, and sometimes dads, you know, they, they want to live vicarious through their sons and, you know, they want them to be something they're not and just wasn't what was in the heart of his son. And his son said, no, I don't have it in me, dad. I'm not going to do it. And so Ziba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and kill us for as a man is, so is his strength. And so a couple ideas there, what they said to him was, um, 
again, kind of goading him that, you know, making fun of him because his son wouldn't do it. And, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Why don't you stand? Why don't you kill us? And then the other part of it is that, you know, there, there was something in, in, in ancient culture, you know, of who, whose hand you died by. And it would be more noble and, and more worthy to die from the hand of Gideon, this great warrior and this great, great, great victor in the, all these battles. And they say, you kill us. And then, um, and then he arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels. So pretty interesting that these ancient kings of the Midianites, the, the, the emblems that they used to worship their God were shaped in the, the form of a crescent moon, crescent-shaped emblems that were on their camels. What, what modern religion uses a crescent moon? Islam, right? Muslims, that's the, the sign of, the, of Islam. And again, nothing new under the sun. And um, the name Allah appears um, in the Bible when, you know, under the different deities that were worshipped in, in the old times, Allah was, was one of them. We, we hear of um, um, the different names of the gods, and I'm drawing a big blank right now, on um, um, the names of the gods in the, in the Old Testament, but the, the name Allah is in one of those names. And, you know, when Muhammad started, he was basically with these same pagan gods, that these, all of these pagan nations worshiped through Israel's history, especially through this period of their history. And he just picked Allah as the one that they were going to, they were going to worship. Ashtoreths, Baals. That's what I was trying to say. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson. Also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And so Gideon's still, um, you know, acting as a mighty man of valor. And he makes a good decision here that he's not going to rule over them. He doesn't want to rule over them. And, and basically to say that, that, you know, I didn't deliver you from the hand of the Midianites. God delivered you from the hand of the Midianites. And that's the whole point of the story. And God's going to rule over you. And I won't rule over you. And Gideon said to them, but I would like to make one little small request while we're talking about it. Would you give me the earrings from his plunder? For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmael, Ishmaelites. So the 135,000 slain soldiers and on their camels and the camels of the kings were, were decorated with gold. And, and Gideon had taken the crescent emblems off of the camels. And so the kings would have been highly decorated. The soldiers would have all wore gold earrings. And then after the plunder, they, they go through to the plunders of spoil. And they would have taken all those earrings. And the soldiers would have had them. And Gideon said, um, I, I want all those earrings. And so it says, so they answered, we will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment. So they spread out a big blanket on the, on the ground. And each man began to throw his earrings that he had into the plunder. And when it was over, the weight of the gold earrings that he required was 1,700 shekels of gold, about 50 pounds of gold. So tons and tons of gold that came from, you know, little earrings that started with little earrings, but 135,000 pairs of earrings amounts to quite a bit of gold. And so, um, so 1,700 shekels of gold beside the crescent ornaments that didn't count the crescent ornaments, the pennants, the purple robes, which were on the Kings of Midian. And besides the chains that were around their camels necks and Gideon made it into an ephod and he set it up in his city, Oprah Winfrey and all the 
and I'm just going to go with Oprah. I think it's Oprah, but we'll just go with Oprah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon in his house. And so, you know, one of the... Um, one of the, the biblical concepts of life is um, finishing well as Christians, not not in this life, as life as Christians, is that we finish well. And and a lot of the stories that we have in the Bible, you know, like I, I feel sometimes critical of maybe judging Gideon for some of the decisions that he's going to make, that he starts here. And then and then in the next chapter, we're going to see some more poor decisions that Gideon makes. And, you know, I feel like, like, who am I to, like, judge Gideon? You know, Gideon was was a great man of valor, and I'm, I'm judging him for some of these decisions that he's made. And I'm going to get up here in front of you guys and tell you that, that Gideon didn't necessarily finish as well as he started. Um, and, 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 I, and honestly, there, there, there's a reason. We're supposed to do that. Like, we're allowed to do that. There's, there, you know, and again, I'm not judging him in my heart and critical of him. Gideon is, as we're going to see, he's in the Faith Hall of Fame. And, and guess how many of his sins are listed in Hebrew chapter 11? Not a one of them. He's mentioned as, as those that put the armies of the enemies to flight. The enemy armies to flight, you know, and this 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 great praise of God for for um, Gideon in Hebrews chapter 11. King David, a man after God's own heart mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. No mention of their failures, of Gideon's sins, of his mistakes. And no, nor will there be any memory, I think, of of those mistakes in heaven. You know, we won't look at Gideon. We won't meet Gideon and say, oh, man, it was amazing what happened, you know, with the, the 300 and what you guys did. But, man, why did you make all those decisions at the end of your life? Like, I don't, I don't think that'll be a part of the conversation, you know, that, that we just won't remember those things. But it starts here. And, you know, the thing is, the sword of the, of the Midianites didn't defeat the, the, the children of Israel. And, and, and but the earrings of the soldiers did defeat the Israelites to, to a great extent. Right. Because what's going to happen here? Look at the last verse of chapter eight or not the last verse 28. It says, Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel so that they lifted their heads no more. And in the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Actually, we'll get to it here in a minute. But let me finish what we were talking about. So um, so, so Gideon, um, he fashions, he takes all that gold and he fashions an ephod and he puts it out and, and the people begin to worship the object of the ephod. And, you know, but as far as the, that, that Gideon making that mistake, and we were talking about, you know, are we supposed to be judging him and how do we judge him? But, you know, this is the point of the story, guys. This is the point of why we're here tonight on Wednesday night. This is the point of why we're taking these historical events and we're putting them in our heart and why the Bible says the word of God is a light unto your path and a lamp unto your feet. And that, that we read our Bible and pray every day. And the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you sit here tonight and, you know, you go through these stories and you're like, yeah, but, you know, my life's still a mess at home. I got these things at work. How did that affect, you know, how did that change my life? How did that help? But really, here's what it does. We, we look at Gideon's life and it encourages us. It teaches us. It instills something in us that's supernatural. It's the manna from heaven that creates a character within you. When, when all these things we go through, we, we look at the life of Gideon and we do judge it. And it's a lesson for us. And God lets us see the mistakes that people make in the past. So that we learn from them, so that we don't make those mistakes, so that we see the results of those mistakes. And we have this entire history. And what I love about the Bible is the Bible is real lives that were lived in, in a real way. And then God teaches us about life, about truth, 
through, through the lives of just real people. Like he didn't, you know, these aren't actors. These aren't things that God set up. These aren't all, you know, the Bible's not just a book of parables and a book of Proverbs. These are real lives and real events. And we get to look at them and we get to, we get to see the mistakes they made and, and help us not to make those mistakes. We get to see the strengths that they had and learn from those. And then in verse 29, we're not moving fast enough to get through four chapters tonight, but we're going to do it. And then Zerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and dwelt. I'll put my glasses on. I can read better dwelt in the house, in, in his own house, and Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring. And then I, I'm really glad that the Lord tells us, for he had many wives. Because if that dude had 70 sons with one wife, that poor woman. And, and you know, obviously, the Bible doesn't record, not, not doesn't record, but in this case, this doesn't mean that Gideon had 70 boys without having any girls. It only mentions the boys. So if he had 70 sons, he could have had 70 daughters. He could have had 80 daughters. He could have had 35 daughters. I mean, you know, how does your family lay out boy to girl? And, and you know, what's the ratio? Or how, I, We don't know, but we know he had 70 sons. So really, 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 really practical to think that, possible to think that he had well over 100 kids from many different wives. And so now here we have this. Gideon, who says, I don't want to be your king. I don't want to rule over you. Let God rule over you. And then he, and then he creates this ephod of gold that's a, you know, an ephod is, is what a priest would wear. It's a garment thing that, you know, would be like his mantle that he puts out that people worship and, and are causing people to stumble in the town. He goes home and he starts to live a little reckless and he, he's multiplying wives to himself, 70 sons with many wives. And... um. And then in verse 31, and it says, and his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son whose name was Abimelech. So like, dude, you have 70 wives. That's not good enough. But then he found a concubine from Shechem. I guess when he was down in Shechem on business, he wanted to have a concubine down there. I'm like, dude, just bring one of your wives with you or a couple of them, or like five of them with you. You'll be all right, but not good enough. So the, the, the wives, it doesn't tell us how many wives, just many wives, 70 kids. So I said 70 wives, we'll just use it. We'll just go with it for fun. But 70 wives and, and, and yet he's, he's doing business in Shechem and he keeps a concubine in Shechem. And, and, and the Shechemite has a, bears him a son and he calls his name Abimelech. And Abimelech means Abba, Melech. And Abba is the same term we got, we have, it's an untranslated um, Greek term or Hebrew term that means father. Abba, father. And so Abba's father. And then Abimelech means king. So he names this son from Shechem. My father is king. So he doesn't want to be a king. And he starts well, but then he starts multiplying wives and having kids. And then he has a son and he names his son. My father is king. And then it says, um, and now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age. And he was buried in a tomb of Joash, his father, in Oprah of the Abizarites, so it was as soon as Gideon was dead that the children of Israel again played the harlot with their Baals and made Baal Bareth their God. And thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, which is Gideon, in accordance with the good that he had done to Israel. And so, again, this is the pattern of Judges, right? What we just read um, in verse 34 is that they went back, they went back whoring after other gods and they didn't um, worship 
the God of Israel. You know, it's so crazy how they continued to go back to the Baals and leave the living God. Somebody said that would be like leaving your wife for a mannequin. And, you know, you, 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 know, you, you show up to your, your house and you tell your wife, you know, I'm, I'm leaving you. I, I found somebody else. And they say, oh, really? Who is she? Where is she? Well, she's in the car, you know. And in your car, you have a, a mannequin strapped to the passenger seat. And, you know, you tell her, well, she, she doesn't, she never argues with me. And she doesn't complain. And, you know, but <laughs> I drive as fast as I want. And she leaves me alone. And, you know, you start going through the reasons why you... You're leaving her for a mannequin, but, you know, the, the concept is crazy, right? That you'd leave a living, loving relationship to have a relationship with a mannequin, you know, and that's, that's basically what, what happens when they leave the living, loving God to, to worship idols and literally statues of stone. And, um, and then it says in chapter 9, it says, And Abimelech, so we're going to get a little story of Abimelech. Abimelech's got an interesting story we'll cover in chapter 9. And then he's going to get a stone smashed on his head in the end of nine. And then God will go through some more judges. Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his brothers, mother's brothers and spoke with him. So he went to all his uncles. So of all uh, uh, Gideon's kids, he's got 70 kids that are all there where he's from. And then he has this concubine out in, in Shechem and he has this son Abimelech with him. And so but he's back with Gideon, I'm, I'm supposing and supposing. And so Abimelech went to his mother's brothers, all his uncles on his mom's side. And he asked, saying, please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem, which is better for you that all 70 of the sons of Zerubbabel reign over you or that one reign over you. Remember that I am your own flesh and your bone. And his and his mother's brothers spoke all these words concerning him in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. And their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech. And they said, he is our brother. So the men of Shechem agreed that Abimelech's reasoning made sense. That rather than serve the 70 sons of Gideon, um, choose somebody that came from their own tribe that was a um, Shechemite. And so they, they said, yeah, it makes sense. And it says, so they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Bereth and with Abimelech hired worthless and reckless. I love the terms worthless and reckless men. And they fought and they followed him. And he went to his father's house in Oprah Winfrey and killed his brothers, the 70 sons of Zerubbabel on one stone. So they lined him up on a stone, and probably chopped their heads off. And killed them all on one stone. And it says, but Jotham, the youngest son of Zerubbabel, was left because he hid from himself. And, and all the men of Shechem gathered together, all of Beth Milo. And they went and made Abimelech king beside the terebinth tree at the pillar that was in Shechem. And now when they told Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and lifted his voice and cried. And he said to them, so we get kind of like the first sermon, parable, prophecy, uh, not necessarily first prophecy, but in the Bible. And so he's going to speak in this parable to the um, men of Shechem, questioning, basically, again, challenging them on what is God's will? Is this was this God's will for you guys to send my brother down to kill 70 of his brothers on one stone and raise him up as king? And, and if this is God's will, then God's blessing will be upon it. But if this is not God's will and you acted outside of God's will, then God's blessing will not be upon it and you will pay for this sin. And so basically that's what the parable is going to say in a nutshell. Uh, I guess we can read it. Verse 8, it says, um, 
the tree once went forth, and you can kind of feel the, the, as we go through it, the different parts of the story that he's using as a parable. The trees once went, went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. I'm assuming that would be Gideon in the beginning. But the olive tree said to them, should I, should I cease giving my oil with which they honor God and men to go and sway over trees? And then the tree said to the fig tree, well, then you come and rule over us. And the fig tree said to them, should I cleanse my sweetness and my good fruit and go and, and sway over trees? And then the tree said to the vine, you come. And the vine would be the least of the, of the three trees in the analogy. Um, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, should I seize my new wine, which cheers both God and men and go and sway over trees? And then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And they're each one in succession of kind of um, glory of these trees. So a bramble again would be the least. You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if you think you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour, devour the cedars of Lebanon. That last part is prophetic. It'll come true. And, and basically that's the sum of his parable is that if it's God's will, then um, God will bless it. And if it's not, then there's going to be trouble. And now, therefore, if you have acted in truth and sincerity in making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt with, with Zerubbabel and his house and have done to him as he deserves, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you out of the hand of Midian, but you have risen up against my father's house this day and killed 70 of his sons on one stone and made Abimelech the son of a female servant king over the men of, of Shechem because he is your brother, if then you have acted in truth and sincerity with Rebobel and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo and let fire come from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and he went to uh, have a beer and dwelt there for fear of Abimelech, his brother. He didn't go to have a beer. He went to beer. And dwelt there. And verse 22 says, After Abimelech had reigned over Israel three years, God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dwelt treacherously with Abimelech. So these are, these are his uncles. These are the same men. the same people in his town. And, and now this, this prophecy this is going to start to unfold. And we'll kind of see again the life of Abimelech. Um, in that... that um, the crime done to the servants of 70 sons of Zebuel might be settled and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them and on the men of Shechem who aided in the killing of his brothers. And then the men of Shechem set men in ambush against him on the tops of the mountains and they robbed all who passed by along the way. And it was told Abimelech. Now Gael, the son of Ebed came to his brothers and went to Shechem and the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. So they went out to the fields and gathered grapes from their vineyards and trotted them. So probably June, July time, summertime when the grapes are, are harvested and made merry. So basically they, they made a bunch of wine and they had a party and they made merry. And then they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and cursed Abimelech. So they started to get some liquid courage here. They're getting drunk and they're starting to talk trash about Abimelech out loud. And, um, and it says, and then Gail the son of Ebed, who is, Abim, who is Abimelech and who is, she, and who is Shechem, that we should, I'm sorry. Then Gael, the son of Ebed said, who is Abimelech and who is Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbabel and the son of Zubal, his officer, serve the men of Hamar, the fathers of Shechem? But why should we serve him? 
If only this people were under my authority, then I would remove Abimelech. So he had Abimelech increase your army and come out. And so then he said, Abimelech, increase your army or come out. So he's drunk. He's in the party and he's going, Abimelech was here right now. I'd tear him up. I'd beat him up if he was here right now. Where's he at? You know, like if he was here, let him gather his army and fight me right now. And, you know, and then when when Zebul in verse 30, the ruler of the city heard the words of the drunk, the son of Ebed, his anger was aroused and he sent a messenger to Abimelech secretly saying, take note, Gael, the son of Ebed and his brothers have come to Shechem and here they are fortifying the city against you. So basically, hey, this guy's in here, he's drunk, he's talking trash about you, they're planning something. And now, therefore, get up by night, you and the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. And it shall be as soon as the... Yeah, I missed the verse that it was in my mind, but the one where the guy told him, well... You know, or maybe it's coming up. We'll go. We'll go on. As soon as the sun is up in the morning, that you shall rise early and rush upon the city. And when all the people who are with with him come out against you, then you may do to them as you find opportunity. So Abimelech and all the people who were with him rose by night and lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. And when Gael the son of Ebed went out and stood in the entrance to the city gate. Abimelech and all the people who were with him rose from lying in wait. And when Gael saw the people, he said to Zebul, look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. But Zebul said to him, man, you're hung over and you see shadows in the mountains as they were men. And so the, you know, it's the next morning. So they get this word to, to Gideon, I'm sorry, to Abimelech and Abimelech gathers his men in the middle of the night. They head down, they, they set up in the city. And the next morning, as the sun is coming up, this guy that was talking trash, he steps out to the city gate and when Abimelech sees them rise and the city rise, the men start coming down out of the mountains and he sees them and he goes and he tells the guy, hey, they're coming. And the guy says, man, you're seeing sh- shadows like you, you don't know what you're seeing. You're hungover. You're not seeing it right. He says, you were seeing shadows on the mountains as if they were men. And so Gal spoke again and said, Gal spoke again and said to the people, they are coming down from the center of the land. And another company is coming from the diviner's terebinth tree. And Zebul said to him, where indeed is your mouth now? That's the verse I was looking for. I thought I passed it. Where is your mouth now? Hey, big mouth, you talked all that trash. Now, now what? They're here. You said you wanted to fight him. Well, all right, there he is. Go fight him. With, with which you said, who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out, if you will, and fight him now. And Gael went, went out, leading the men of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled from him, and many fell wounded to the very entrance of the gate. And Abimelech dwelt at Aramah by Zebul and drove out Gala's brothers so that they would not dwell in Shechem. So what do you guys think is going to happen to Abimelech? Like, it's probably not looking good for this guy, right? Like, his, his, his fate, according to what he did, he murdered 70 of his brothers. And then the prophecy comes that if it was of God, then it'll be okay. There'll be a blessing. And if it's not, and so next thing we know, it says that God, um, you know, right here, it says that God stirred the hearts of the men in Shechem against Abimelech. So God had created the, the riff in the first place. And so now, you know, because God's hand is not on it, God's blessing is not there. He begins to stir the hearts of the men in Shechem. They go out and they, they crush the grapes. They have this you know, pagan festival or whatever it was where they're partying and drinking. They're, they're drunk and they're, they're, they're challenging him. They get word back to um, Abimelech. He gathers his men and he goes down and he shows up. 
And I'm thinking by this point, like he, he's, he's done. Like he, Abimelech's, the writing's on the wall for him. And when, when I read, when you read through this, Abimelech's going to win. He's going to win this battle, this first battle. And, you know, you're thinking, what, what happened? I guess, I don't know. Like, it seemed like this guy was done, but he gets his in the end. So he's going to actually win this. And it says in verse 37, so Gal spoke again and said to the people are coming down. Where are we at? 40 and a 42 sounds good. And it came to pass about the next day that the people went out into the field and they told Abimelech. So he took his people, divided them into three companies, took a play out of his dad's playbook. Remember when Gideon did that and lay in wait in the field. And he looked and there were the people coming out of the city and he rose against them and attacked them. And Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And the other two companies rushed upon all who were in the fields and killed them. So Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He took the city and killed the people who were in it. And he demolished the city and he sowed it with salt. So basically Abimelech's going to beat these guys because the men of Shechem were just as guilty as he was. And so God's exacting his, his, his justice upon first the men of Shechem for their part in it. And so Abimelech fights them. He, he beats them all. And then he sows their city with salt. What does that mean to sow a city with salt? Salt will kill the ground so nothing can grow there. You can't grow vegetables. You can't grow fruit. Nothing will grow in the ground with salt. This is a, the Romans did that in Jerusalem. When they, when they sacked Jerusalem, they, they, they do it often, but they did it in Jerusalem where they, they sowed the ground with salt. And so basically they just covered the ground with salt and it absolutely just kills anything positive in the ground and it can't be can't be harvested or grown or crops done in it. so i was reading this and i said i got i had a big bag of of salt and i had the little pebbles for my i forget what it was for it was ice melt salt maybe and i'm thinking if this is true then i should be able to pour this bag of salt over all these weeds in this front area i have and sew it in a little bit and the weeds will go away so I take this bag of salt and it's rock salt size and, and it's just a little island. The curb was, wasn't big between the house and the street, you know, that part out in front and it was overgrown with weeds, but it was only like 10 feet wide or long and, you know, sidewalk size wide. And so I pour this whole bag of salt in there and try to get it. It didn't do nothing, man. Those weeds just kept growing and growing. It didn't even put a dent in them. Like, I don't know how you, I guess it worked in the Bible, but it didn't work for me, so... And now when all the men of the tower of Shechem heard that, nothing probably good will grow in there ever, ever, but the weeds will still grow. And now when the men of that tower of Shechem heard that they had entered the stronghold of the temple of the God Bereth. So they're going to go to their temple and see what their God Bereth can do for them. It's not going to be much. And it was told Abimelech that all the men of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to the Mount of Zalmun, he and all the people with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and he cut down a bow from a tree. And he took it and he laid it on his shoulders and he said to the people who were with him, what you have seen me do, make haste and do as I have done. So Abimelech goes into the, the nearing forest or where the trees are and he cuts down a tree or a branch or some size of something and he puts it on his shoulders and he carries it back, this, this branch, this tree, this stump, whatever it was, and um, log. And, and he says, as you've seen me do, go and do. So all the men of of uh, Gideon's, or I'm sorry, Abimelech's men, they go and they all cut down a branch and they put it on their shoulders. And so all each of the people in verse, verse 49 cut 
down his own bow and followed Abimelech, put them against the strongholds and set the stronghold on fire above them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. So it wasn't very fortified, whatever they built with. A lot of the building in those days was done in limestone and limestone was full of moisture and the moisture would would dry when the fire was lit and eventually the walls would not necessarily catch on fire, but they would crumble and they would fall. And so the Romans used the same tactic. They would build a fire under the wall and certain types of wall, the fire would, would, would penetrate the wall. And so that's what, what Abimelech does. He builds a fire under this, this thing where they're all hiding out. And it says, um, the end of verse 49, that, the people of the tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women also. And Abimelech went to Thebes, and he encamped against Thebes, and he took it. But there was a strong tower in the city there as well, and all the men and women of the people of the city fled there and shut themselves in, and they went up to the top of the tower. And Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it, and he drew near, even as close as the door of the tower, to burn it with fire. So they have the same plan. They're just going to go and burn this one with fire, same way they just did the last one. And so Abimelech is bringing his his um, branch to, towards the base and building it. And verse 53 says, but a certain woman, don't tell us who, just a certain woman, dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. So there's the end of Abimelech, mostly. So a woman is on top of the wall and she has a millstone. A piece of a millstone. So it's, it's a, who knows? It could have weighed 25 pounds. I mean, you know, I mean, it'd be the equivalent of like, you know, somebody getting up on a four or five story building and drop 25 pound frozen turkey on your head. You know, it wouldn't go well for you. But she, she drops this millstone and definitely by the hand of God, like all, all uh, King David's smooth stones and Goliath's foreheads, this thing lands, hits its target. It um, smacks him right in his head. And verse 54, he wasn't dead yet. And then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer. And he said to him, draw your sword and kill me. Lest the men say of me, a woman killed me. So his young man thrust him through and he died. So his biggest concern wasn't like whether he went to heaven or hell or, you know, his main concern was what they wrote on his tombstone. You know, here lies Abimelech killed by a woman with a 25 pound turkey frozen. You know, like he, he just wanted to make sure it didn't say of him in history that, that, that a woman killed him. So instead, God put it in a bestseller and translated it into a hundred different languages and sent it all over the world for us all to read that Abimelech basically died at the hand of a woman. And even though he didn't get to cover his, his tracks because it's still recorded that he died by the hand of a woman. Verse 56, then God replied, excuse me, verse 55, and when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed every man to his place. And thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to, uh, done to his father by killing his servant's brothers and all the evil of the men of Shechem. God returned to their own heads and on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. So basically all of that was a story, a history to bring us, right? To verse 56. And 56 is the point of it all, right? That, that God brought justice. And that, that in God's economy, you know, that God brings justice. And in this particular case, God did show up and, and, and exacted justice upon the Shechemites who uh, were a part of, of murdering the 70 sons of Zerubbabel and, you know, this repaying evil for, for good. And then, um, 
And then in chapter 10, let's do 10. We got time. This one's just quick history. And after Abimelech, there arose to serve Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dudu, a man of Issachar. Dudu is actually like a, that's a complimentary name. Yeah, it's, it's, it's only in English, I think, that it means something. My friend's Taiwanese, and his nickname for his girlfriend is Pupu. <laughs> and they speak Mandarin Chinese, but it's affectionate. And then he wants me to call her Pupu. And I'm like, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> no, no Pupu, no doo-doo. <clears throat> and it says, so he judged Israel 23 years, and he died and was buried in Shemir. You know, what's interesting about Tola is that he, um, the word Tola means worm. And he didn't... Um, you know, nothing really said of him, but but he was, you know, Tola is a picture of Christ. And the, the you know, just two verses, he reigned longer than Samson reigned. 23 years in Israel is a long time in the reign of the kings uh, or in the reign of the judges. You know, some some very short, some longer, but it was still a healthy reign in the in the reign of the judges. And through this part of Israel's history, no doubt in those 23 years, events happened and things happened that, that God just doesn't record for us. He just tells us that Tola reigned for 23 years. And and then we're going to go on to the next one. But the, 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 the worm, do you remember where Jesus said that he was a worm? That, and, um, and so basically the concept that, that, that this tola or this worm is a, you know, it's a type of worm that where we get um, the color scarlet from, where we get red from. And so this worm is, it's, I forget the type of worm, it's like a cotton worm or something. And it, it climbs up and it has babies into a tree. And then the babies begin to eat the mom. Um, and that's how they live and go on. Well, then the mom dies. And, and after she dies, um, she explodes. And from that is, is a really crimson red color that's, that comes from this particular worm. And Jesus likened that to himself, that he was the, the worm that gave its life um, for the babies to live. And so it's a beautiful picture, really a biblical picture, this worm that God created, a real worm that that's the, the span of its life. And then the babies go on and live their lives. And one day they'll climb up a tree and have babies and the babies will eat them and they'll explode, you know, and, and the ancient Egyptians and I think maybe even to this day, to some extent, they use this particular worm. They farm these worms for that red dye that, that, that comes at the end of its life to, to use for scarlet. And so Tola, we have Tola as a picture of Christ. Um, and then we have Dudu as a picture of something else. I don't know what, but it's just Dudu. So it's in verse three, we says, after him arose Jair, the Gileadite, and he judged Israel 22 years and now he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they also had 30 towns, which he called Havor Jair to this day, which is in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Camden. You know, I like the fact that they're going to record that the following judges of Israel, like Gideon, had many children. So the fact that Gideon had 70 sons, not counting his daughters, you know, I think even culturally, though, you know, with 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 the way that from Adam and Eve and, and then from um, Noah and his wife and his three sons and his three daughters, the way the population would have exploded, it, it's not uncommon for, you know, 70 babies, 80 babies from one guy. And so this guy has 30 something kids and, but that would, would have been necessary and pretty normal and even kind of God ordained in order for the, the population to, you know, 
When, when John, the revelator, when he wrote in Revelation that, that one day there would be an army of 200 million, there wasn't even 200 million people you know, in the planet by then. And today we have, well, I think it was, used to be 6 billion, but I think we're approaching, are we approaching 8 billion now people on planet Earth? That that number just continues to grow um, exponentially. And then it says in verse 6, Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Oh, Ha, you know, surprise, surprise. So you can highlight verse six, because again, that's the theme of the book of Judges is this this kind of rolling cycle of them doing what was right in their eyes and them doing evil and God raising up deliverer and a judge. And then, you know, things going well for a while. And then back to this this condition of verse six, that the children of Israel again did evil, again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and went back to their mannequins. And the Ashtoreths and the gods of Syria and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the people of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And so the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. And from that year, they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. And all the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. Moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah, also against Benjamin, against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, we have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our gods and served the Baal, our God. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines and also from the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I delivered you from their land. Yet you have forsaken me and and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. I'm done. Have you guys what's enough? And he goes, I've delivered you from the Philistines and the Sidonians and the Moanites and the Himonites and the flashlights and the Egyptians and the termites and all this stuff. And, and you continue to go back to your mannequin. How many times should I take you back? I'm not I, like, it's enough. Like seriously, the whole point of it is to teach you something you're obviously not learning. And, and again, um, the end of verse 12, I delivered you from their hand. And then in verse 13, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will deliver you no more. And in verse 14, it says, go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. I love it. It says, go hang out with your mannequins. Go cry out to the gods you've chosen. Why are you calling me? You're serving these other gods. Let them deliver you in, the, in their time of distress. And so God, you know, it's funny because, right, again, we, as we read through the Old Testament, it says um, in verse 11, look at verse 11. What does the first part of a, verse 11 say? One, two, three, four. First four words. So the Lord replied, mine says, so the Lord said, how did the Lord say this? I mean, we're reading it like a conversation. And then the Lord said, and then they said, and then the Lord said, and, you know, I think sometimes we think, man, how come God doesn't talk to me that way? You know, like the Lord said, the Lord said, and then they said, oh, we're sorry. And then he said, well, what are you doing? And then they said, well, and then, you know, and so, but again, the Lord does speak to you that way. You know, the Lord absolutely speaks to you that way. And, you know, this is not. No more than what we have an audible voice. The only, the only difference might be in some of these, you know, especially if it's a thus saith the Lord, um, that, that's God speaking through a prophet. So there would have been a voice speaking where God was actually speaking through a prophet. And, and that 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 function, you know, it's it's 
still available today, the word of prophecy. And, you know, the office of prophet is probably not um, today as it was then. But definitely the word of prophecy is just as valid as it ever was. But the point being just this, that is as well as they understood what God was saying, and it's recorded for us here, you can understand God the same way in your life. And again, it's not a matter of God not being able to speak to you. If you're not hearing God's voice this way, if you're not hearing what it is that God wants to say in your life, the problem is, don't be offended. It's not on God's end, it's on your end. You know, and again, it's us. It's God's hand is not too short that he can't reach you. His ear is not too heavy that he can't hear you. And that the Bible promises multiple times that if you seek God with your whole heart, you'll find him and you'll find his will for your life. You can't miss his will for your life if you're looking for it. But, but I love the way we just read these conversations and just kind of cruise. And then in verse um, 15, And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. Oh, poor Lord. You know, the God here, God here he's, like, he's like a little teddy bear in this verse. It says, And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. Let, let me tell you something about God. His soul can no longer endure the misery of Israel. Okay? Same thing, the same heart that God had right here in Judges. Guess what God's heart today for Israel is? Exactly the same. Guess what it's always been? Exactly the same. Guess what it's always going to be? Exactly the same. That's why we want to be on the side of Israel. We want to be on the side that God's on. And, And basically, we get a glimpse here into the heart of God for his people and, and as terrible as they were, and as much as God was justified in, in verse 12 and 13 when he said, dude, I've delivered you enough. I'm done delivering you. I, I'm not going to deliver you. Why don't you go and pray to your mannequins and, and your gods and then see if they'll deliver you. And then the people put the gods away. They repented and they came to God in repentance and they asked God again. And God said that he couldn't handle the misery of his people. They were just miserable. They were, you know, and so if you're miserable, come to God and God will not refuse you. He cannot refuse you. He, and, and no doubt, you know, th- this concept of God's uh, amazing, um, reckless love for Israel, you know, that, that, that song that's out, Reckless Love of God, you know, th- I was on Facebook the other day and it's like this, this fight, um, dad, Gerald posted, my dad posted this video. Do you guys see it? Thousands of, of army guys in Georgia singing that song on Easter Sunday. Anybody see the video? No, uh, uh, just on, just period. But Gerald posted it on his. And it's it's them singing that idea of reckless God, the reckless love of God. And and then it just starts. Thousands of comments. It went, vi- went viral, the video. And, you know, I showed a video too. You guys remember that video I showed in here one time over the Marines? And they were singing uh, Days of Elijah. Something like that, but on a mass scale in this big army base in Georgia, and they're singing Reckless Love. And then, and then some big Facebook thing went all over the world, all over the nation, whatever, posted it. And then it just starts all the fighting. Don't you think that it's retarded to, or don't you think that there's a bad use of words to call the, God, the love of God reckless? And then other Christians getting on and defending it and others getting on and fighting over this song that Corey Asbury just sang about reckless love of God. And this one girl gets on there and she's like, that's why you Christians, you can't get nothing done. Rather than caring about lost people and loving people, you rather fight over the, over the theology behind one stupid word in the song. And, you know, but, but really the concept is just that God himself is definitely not reckless. But listen, 
God's love is nothing short of absolutely reckless. Who loves this way? Who, 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 who lets people, how many of you guys, if I put a bag on your head and I punched you in the face until you were unrecognizable and then I took the bag off your head and I spit loogies into your eye and ripped your beard off of your face, would love me. That's, that's a reckless type of love that doesn't consider the cost to himself, right? That's the whole point is that, that God's love is different than we love. God's love is, even, even in leaving the 99, like the song says, like, did, seriously, have you, did you guys read that, that parable and think, you left 99 sheep to go find one? What's going to happen if you come back and you have 89 sheep and you found the one and now you have 90? Had you stayed, you would have had 99, right? And not 89, because when you left to go find the one, 10 more got lost and you came back to a small, like, doesn't make sense. Like, when you read that parable, you're like, that's not smart. But that's the idea. Like that, that's the way that God loves. And here again, we, we get this same concept. And the word reckless is used in the last verse, last chapter about those men that were, were you know, were going um, on, with Abimelech. But the, the whole point is just that, yes, God's love is absolutely different than the way we love. God's love is completely radical. Like he, he loved, who does this? He loved to, to death the guys that put nails in his hands, you know, the guys that put the crown of thorns on his head, the guy that whipped him with a cat of nine tails, uh, cat of nine tails, 39 times across his back. And, and then again, you know, exemplified here in verse 16, and his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. And so then the people of Ammon gathered together in verse 17 and encamped in Gilead and the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah and the people, the leaders of Gilead said to one another, who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. We are a few minutes over, but we're not because we started late. So we're right on time. We're five minutes early. Let's stand. Let's pray. So um, in, in closing, I think the biggest part of really what we read tonight, for me anyways, impact-wise, is in the life of Gideon. And again, I, I want to be careful um, in, in how I judge the end of Gideon's life. You know, he didn't do nothing completely outrageous or, you know, he didn't go, you know, and, and, ma- and record major sins. But definitely not necessarily a life consistent with finishing well. And one of the concepts in one of the things that Paul said, you know, we taught one of the most impactful um, pastors conferences I've ever been to was 15 years ago. And to this day, the the teachings and the topic, Chuck Smith was still alive and teaching was um, finishing well. And, And he encouraged thousands of Calvary Chapel pastors that it's one thing to start well and it's another thing to finish well. And then the different 10 different pastors that taught that conference, they all picked a a person in the Bible, some who started well and some who finished well, some who started well and finished poorly. And and so in Gideon's life, again, you know, he he kind of fits in the class of those that didn't finish real well. Now, the the the, again, like I said, in, in Gideon's defense, right, Gideon in the he's listed in the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11. So we give him that like he, he's he's a mighty man of valor. When, when we see him in heaven, absolutely, we're not going to remember the end part. And God records it for us in the Old Testament and leaves it out of the New Testament so that you and I can learn from it. But but there is a concept of finishing well. 
and we want to finish well. Listen, Christianity is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's not something you do for a short uh, burst and then you got it. It's something you will do for a long time. And marathons are grueling. But we have to finish well. And listen, we need each other to finish well. You know what breaks my heart more than anything? Finishing well. How many of you guys saw the graduation on Sunday with all these guys up here? Okay, how many of you guys, Brian was a part of the, um, and Shane, were both a part of the first one of those we did about two years ago, I think was when we had our first fellowship of the unashamed graduation ceremony. And I still got pictures on our Facebook of it. And, and again, Shane and Brian graduated from that class. And there was 10 guys that time. And of those 10 guys, two years ago, you know, sad to say, I don't, I don't think all of them are really walking with the Lord right now. You know, and, and, and start well and not finish well. And, and, and even the, the, the group of men that, that we stood up here on Sunday that, that are starting well, but our heart is to see people finish well. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for the biblical concept that Paul gives us that is illustrated throughout the Bible. That, Lord, not only do we need to start well, but we need to finish well. And, Lord, as a pastor, I want to finish well. And, Lord, I, I pray that... Um, that, that, Lord, that um, everybody in here in our church would finish well. I pray for the men of our fellowship, that, uh, of our discipleship class, that they would finish well. I pray for everybody who's standing in this room in our youth group. And, Lord, that we would finish well. And, and Lord, um, I, I pray, God, for just that idea that, that, that Christianity is a marathon. It's not a sprint, God. It's something that, Lord, as we just live a simple life and take day at a time, that, Lord, we would finish well. We thank you for, for Gideon and his amazing victories and, and a few things in the end of his life, God, that didn't, don't make a lot of sense, Lord. And we, uh, we just pray that we would learn from those in Jesus' name. Amen.